Welcome to episode 685 with my guest, Dr. David Kabushan. My name is Paul. How are you? <laughs> uh, if you're new to the Mental Illness Happy Hour, this is a place for honesty about all the battles in our heads. Uh, a reminder, I'm not a therapist, and uh, this show's not meant to be a substitute for professional mental counseling. I'm a peer. What do you need to know, huh? We, uh, we've been on the air for 13 years, something like that. Half of the podcast is uh, an interview. The other half are surveys that have been filled out by people anonymously online. And, uh, God, I've learned so much in the last 13 years through, well, the, the interviews, obviously, but the surveys especially. Uh, so if you've never taken our surveys... Go to our website, metalpod.com, and consider filling out a survey. We uh, Maybe we'll read it on the show, or maybe we'll read it on the Patreon website. Um, our Patreon URL is uh, patreon.com slash mentalpod, and all kinds of different rewards at different tiers uh, on there. We've got a Sunday afternoon hangout support group on Sundays. Um, it's a really, really cool group of people and a uh, lot of love, support, and vulnerability and recovery there. This is from the Ask Paul Anything survey, and this is filled out by a woman who calls herself Boop Scoop. And she asks, how were you able to eliminate white flour and sugar? And in the parentheses, I'm guessing maybe dairy too. No, I've not given up uh, dairy. I've lowered it, but um, I'm seeing a gastroenterologist next month for gut issues I've had my whole life, and I'm going to ask about doing an elimination diet. I think this will even involve giving up coffee for a little while. I want to do this to see if food is causing the it, these issues, but I have a serious sweet tooth. Did you go through? I like how my tooth whistled as I said sweet tooth. Did you go through withdrawals? And if so, how long did it last? Thanks. Great question. Um, it did. There was a withdrawal from from the sugar. And uh, it. Uh, the, the thing that I used to help me withdraw, uh, at least the, the, the very first time that I tried it, which was uh, about 10 years ago, um, I heard somebody raving about a book called The Body Ecology Diet. And it's not a calorie uh, restriction diet. It's a lower the sugar and lower the acidity diet. And it helped me profoundly. Um, the first one of the things that said in the book, and I, it was true in my experience, was the first couple of weeks were awful. It says you will feel worse before you feel better. And I felt like I had a piano on my back. I got exhausted. I was out of breath. And that, I'm told, are the toxins being released from the yeast in your gut dying off. And eventually that goes away and you will feel a renewed sense of energy. At least I did. And this is not sponsored by the Body Ecology Diet. I just think it's a profoundly helpful book. Um, so I, I, I really recommend it. It recommends a bunch of different things that you can do to help 
get your diet in line because the Western diet is very sugar-based and very acidic. And you may have to give up coffee for a little while, but um, I was able to add it back in. And my, my gut is in a good place these days. I'm so much less bloated. I'm so much less tired. Um, so I hope I hope that helps. And if not, go fuck yourself. Ooh, was that harsh? This is from the uh, comment on someone's survey. And this is filled out by Clementine. And uh, Clementine writes, I just listened to episode 682 about anger. And first of all, let me say that I'm so glad people are talking about that. For years, I've been telling my friends that I don't understand why we don't talk about anger the same way we talk about shame or anxiety or depression. My theory is that we live in patriarchy, question mark. So maybe outwardly expressed anger is more acceptable because it's seen as, quote, masculine, as a, quote, masculine emotion. Not that this is fair to any gender, but just my initial thoughts. Anyway, I love the episode and I feel very validated by that because sometimes I've struggled with anger issues too. I get overstimulated by lots of noise and intense emotions, so some days I have to cover my eyes with a sleep mask and put on noise-canceling headphones for 10 to 15 minutes to calm down and soothe my nervous system. I love that. What a great, what a great idea. There's also some good uh, virtual reality things. I bought uh, virtual reality goggles a couple of years ago. I had a guest on, and she had... Uh, designed a meditation um god and i'm trying trying to remember the name of it i'm such an old fuck fuck if you if you google metal pod and uh, virtual uh reality you'll you'll find it and it was really really cool but of course being a video game addict i eventually started buying video games and i was playing those compulsively and so I had to uh, put the VR goggles aside, but all of that is to say is that it was really, really calming um, doing the VR goggles with the uh, meditation app. Uh, Continuing with Clementine's survey, the survey I want to comment on is the one about the 10-year-old boy and the 20-something woman sexual abuse scenario. That was most definitely child abuse without a doubt and shouldn't have happened no matter how shitty that woman's life situation was. Absolutely 100%. It is always up to the adults to maintain boundaries with children because, hello, children are immature and don't always understand what they're doing. For a child, life is an experience, and it's up to the adult to protect them, even from the adult themselves. At the same time, I believe that when it comes to trauma and abuse, what's most important is how the victim feels about it. I have a friend who was raped by her landlord, and even though it was a fucked up thing where she was 100% the victim, she never called it rape out loud, and I never pushed her to. I feel like it has to be the victim's decision to come to terms with however they feel about their abuse. I've known other people who have had very inappropriate and what I would consider violating physical contact from their parents, but they tell me they don't feel any trauma or resentment or anger about it at all. These are people who have very positive relationships with their parents too. 
I don't understand it, but like, I don't feel that I have to either. The most important thing is whether or not that has impacted their ability to feel safe in the world. And sometimes I guess it doesn't shrugs. I think everyone can be a little bit different sometimes with the way we process things. And it's important to not try and put words or feelings in the minds of people who are maybe just working through it in their own way, a way that is very different from the majority of the population. Thanks for all you do. Your podcast honestly makes me feel so much better every time I listen to it. You're a kind man, and I wish there were more people like you in the world. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. And I only read that for that last thing that she wrote. I'm, I'm, I wasn't even paying attention to the rest of the survey. I just really wanted to toot my own horn. Where can you buy your own horn? That's a, that is a question, you know, we say toot your own horn a lot, but we never get into the nitty gritty of, do you get that at, uh, <laughs> fuck, I'm Pep Boys? I'm trying to think of auto places. What's the place that has the annoying, uh, maybe it's just a West Coast thing. Fuck. This is an awful moment filled out by uh, um, Menti B. Queen. And they write, when my dad was growing up, he endured a lot of emotional and physical abuse from his mother. He was the youngest of nine. Good Lord. And the result of an affair my grandmother had while my grandfather was overseas, making him a ready-made target child. The abuse was well known through the community. She was not scared of creating a scene in public, and for some reason, no one ever interfered. The community very much had the mindset of what happens behind closed doors is no one else's business. These included people of the church where they regularly duty, dutifully attended. Teachers, classmates, parents, family members, everyone you'd expect to intervene in this scenario. My dad never had that, but he grew up to be an amazing father. He's successful, happy, in a very loving relationship healthy, and mentally fucked up. He is also an author. About 15 or so years ago, he published a book written as a fiction piece, but detailed chronologically his childhood, everything that happened, everyone who knew and didn't, everyone who knew and didn't help. He called out every single person who never spoke up to protect him like he deserved, using fake names, of course, but if the shoe fits. And it went around the community like wildfire. The title was innocuous. And since he was a local author, all the stores in the library pre-ordered his book. When it was delivered, everyone greedily read what was actually happening in that little town 40 years ago. It truly showed me who among my friends were related to families who were called out in the book. Several people stopped talking to me. It was a huge scandal. But at this point, we had moved out of that little bitty town and didn't give a fuck what everyone was saying. It became his most monumental petty act to date. I still haven't given my per myself permission to read the book. I think there is a stage of growth when we... Don't give a fuck what toxic or, I don't know, unhealthy people 
think of us. There was a moment when I unfriended a guy that I'd considered myself friends with in grade school. And just his messages were so passive aggressive. And he, he was and is racist and just a dick. And it occurred to me one day, why do I put up with this guy's messages and and I just unfriended him and it just felt like such a relief. Yeah, there was a little part of me that was like, oh, what's he going to think? We're going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. This episode is sponsored by Factor. Uh, are you a fan of uh, having delicious ready-to-heat meals delivered right to your door. Maybe you're not. Maybe you enjoy uh, going out and eating fast food and tons of garbage and paying too much money for it and having to waste gas. I don't know. But I enjoy Factor. It's delicious. Chefs create the meals. Dietitians approve it. They have all kinds of options, 35 different ones. I did the keto in particular. Love the turkey chili and zucchini with ancho lime crema. If that doesn't tell you a chef's involved, I don't know what you want from me. Right now, head to factormeals.com slash mental50 and use code mental50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while subscription is active. That's code MENTAL50 at factormeals.com slash mental50 to get 50% off your first box and two free wellness shots per box while subscription is active. And we will put the links to this in the show notes because that's probably a lot to remember. And you got other stuff on your mind. This episode is sponsored by the ASPCA. You guys know how much I love Gracie, and I know you guys love your pets. Now, imagine you're at the vet's office, and you get a gigantic bill, and you can't afford it. Well, the ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program offers customizable accident and illness plans, making it easier for pet parents like you to help your pet get the care they may need. The ASPCA Pet Health Insurance Program has been around for over 18 years, and they've helped more than 600,000 pets during that time. They allow you to customize your plan, helping ensure that your pet's plan is as unique as they are, because vet bills can really add up, especially when you're least expecting it. It's simple. Use their app to submit a claim, and you'll receive reimbursement for eligible vet bills directly into your bank account. To explore coverage, visit ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. That's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. Again, that's ASPCAPetInsurance.com slash mental. This is a paid advertisement. Insurance is underwritten by either Independence American Insurance Company or United States Fire Insurance Company and produced by PTZ Insurance Agency Limited. The AASPCA is not an insurer and is not engaged in the business of insurance. And finally, this is uh, from the Struggle in a Sentence Survey, and this one is fucking heavy. Uh, this is filled out by a guy who calls himself CR. And he was a child during the uh, Balkan Wars uh, about his anxiety. Everything is stable, but I know nothing is permanent. I don't trust what I've built to last. 
about his anorexia. I need the clarity. I feel cleaner, purer, less dirty. Bones are pure. My soul is dirty. Fuck. But a sex addiction. This is as close as I get to feeling. I need to control something. About his hoarding food. No one is ever going to starve me again. My cupboards are a testimony to the legacy of the Balkan Wars. About being a sex crime victim. Childhood is a blur of rape divided into two categories, family and soldiers. Okay. About his alexithymia. Getting accused of not wanting to be helped by people I went to specifically to get help because I don't know what I feel makes me wish I hadn't survived the war. About experiencing depersonalization. Is there a me? Is there anything left or did it all get fucked and beaten away years ago? About self-injury. I can feel. I'm real. There's a me. There has to be. You have to be a person to bleed. And then a snapshot from his life. I haven't eaten in four days and it's not taking the edge off the depersonalization anymore. So I go out to a bar so I can fall into bed with a younger woman who wants to work out her daddy issues. It feels like something until it's over and I feel less than nothing. I go home. I sleep badly. I wake up at 4 a.m. and start doing work I've taken home with me. I've had to put up string lights in my office or the shadows in the corners would morph into soldiers' shadows and make me want to hide under the bed. My life is going well. I burn myself and feel the closest thing to happy I've felt in years. That feeling of being trapped in your own life with no way out. All my altars have different handwriting, different affects. I'm somebody in prison. My mom taught me about rape. And I'm nobody on the streets. Before she taught me about love. Nobody will ever love me enough. There's two lies. A kind pimp. Yes. The secret shameful life at home. Happiness isn't the goal. That you always just don't talk about. And then there's the front. The goal is meaning. It's hard to go into the dark places. I should have leaned into that feeling and gotten curious about it. Recognize when your fears are driving your behaviors. What you resist gets louder and run toward them. She said, you first. And I said, I might be gay. I was with a girl. And I said, and what do you have to tell me? She said, I'm moving to Florida and this is my last session. (laughs) (laughs) I'm here with Dr. Devika Bouchon. Uh, Thank you for making the slog coming, coming here. I appreciate it. Um, lot to get to. You were the acting surgeon general in California. You're a pediatrician. Uh, you uh, deal with having bipolar. I want to ask you about your work as a professional, uh, particularly as a pediatrician, um, dealing with mothers. And you know what? Let's kick it off with the survey that I read a couple of weeks ago from the fear survey. Um, and then I just got a response uh, today from a listener who took exception to my comments um, on this fear survey. Would you mind uh, reading sure. both of them and then <clears throat> weigh in? Okay. So first we heard from a reader who shares a fear of hers. So she says, I fear I will never be able to trust anyone with my daughter. I'm afraid my 
I'm terrified my fear of losing control will destroy my relationship with her father and his family. I need to know every detail of when I'm not with her. She's 14 months and I've yet to let my mother-in-law watch her. If I'm not with her, all I can think about is all the awful things that could happen to her. The hardest part is my mother-in-law is always bringing up wanting to watch her while we go out or keep her overnight, and the thought of it literally makes me sick. I've been accused of trying to keep her from people, and it's already causing issues with my husband. I feel like I just need more time. Am I the crazy one here? And I weighed in on it saying, uh, if I can remember correctly, that it sounded like there might be something uh, worth talking to a therapist about. Uh, never having been a parent, not being a therapist or a psychiatrist, uh, I believe I uh, kind of uh, hedged my my comments with that. Uh, and then I the email that I got from somebody uh, today, would you read what they wrote to me? Yes, absolutely. So... I'll paraphrase parts of it. Um, It is a little bit lengthy, but essentially um, this reader was saying that um, the position that perhaps the the initial mother who had written in that she was mentally unwell or keeping her baby from others, um, that she, she, she asked you if she was to blame for this and you suggested perhaps she should seek therapy. My whole body screamed out to write to you about this because no one stands up for new moms properly these days, and I need to. A 14-month-old baby very much needs to be near um, his mother constantly and is in the bonding stage with his or her mother at this point. And goes on to to list, you know, really all the demands that new mothers have to face. And there's, there's so many ways to think about this. I think for me, as a toddler parent and as a pediatrician and somebody living in this day and age um, in the United States, having been raised you know, in the Philippines and in India, where we have a much more collectivistic approach to family and to parenting, you know, I think when you look at modern day practices and approaches around parenting, we have started to take a lot on and we've started to feel like we need to do everything ourselves, we need to do it perfectly, or we're not doing it well. Um, And I think that this example is a very uh, stark case of exactly these tendencies, that if, if we are not providing all of the caregiving and providing it perfectly, that there is something amiss. And I and I actually think that this can lead to uh, mental health challenges for sure for new parents, if if um, you know a parent is feeling like they need to put in twenty four seven time, where's the time for you know going to their own doctor or taking a walk or um, setting up for their day in a way that feels like it's it's sometimes about them too and not just about their obligations as a parent. Um, so taking an afternoon away from your your baby in your opinion as a as an md mm-hmm. um particularly a pediatrician is is not damaging in terms of the bonding to the baby not at all in fact i think the healthiest thing for a baby is a healthy and well adjusted parent and if that means being away from the baby for let's say 8 to 10 hours because you're working 
and you're setting up your own professional identity or because you need time to um, go to therapy, you need time to bond with your partner or with your friends, all of that really combines to make you the most healthy and whole version of yourself so that you can be that best version of yourself for your for your child. So for instance, in my life, uh, my husband and I try to set up a weekly um, date night where we do hand away um, childcare to a babysitter. Um, similarly, on weekends, we'll, we'll find a period of time where each of us does our own self-care activities, different for both of us. And, and does this apply to any age that the baby is at? Because one of the things that the, the person who emailed me said was that the first three years mm-hmm. are, is, is when the, the baby needs to be with the mother uh, all the time. Uh, is, is, that, is there a demarcation between the first three years and... Uh, and again, I just to the person that emailed me, I'm I'm really I'm trying to take in what you're saying and not discount it or say no, you're you're wrong. I know there's a, d- a bunch of different schools of thought on this, and I and I hope this doesn't uh, come across as me saying no, you're you're wrong. I just wanted your take. Uh, on this. You're right. And I think that you're being very open hearted and considering this perspective, um, you know, very fairly. What I would say is the first three years are certainly the most important in terms of attachment and feeling safe, feeling a sense of I have consistent caregivers who love me, who respond to my needs when I'm cold, when I'm wet, when I'm hungry, when I'm frustrated. I have a way of organizing those experiences and trusting that the world will give me what I need. And so in the most broad sense, caregiving is very important during that time, but that doesn't mean it has to be one person who is with the baby at all times during those three years. Um, in fact, as long as there is consistency of caregiving, it can it can be a whole team of people um, who are who are there for the baby. It does not have to be one person. Okay. Um, so do you, do you feel like we kind of dealt with that? I think we, we did um, to some degree. I, I, I want to say my, my heart really goes out to this reader who, um, to this listener who has this 14-month-old and is really struggling to feel like she won't be a good mother if she allows other caregivers in and and in a way, takes her leave of her baby for brief periods of time, whether it's overnight, whether it's a few mm-hmm. hours at a time. And and I and I would, you know, urge that parent for their own livelihood, their own sense of being fulfilled and and well, um, to to consider what they might be afraid of in those mm-hmm. moments, and to actually to echo. Um, what you had shared that may this might be something to explore with a close friend, a trusted partner, or even a therapist to think about, mm-hmm. you know, how could I set myself up to feel safer taking this risk that feels insurmountable? Yeah, because one of the things that she said is the thought of it literally makes her Me sick. sick. Mm-hmm. Um, and that to me was was a red flag. Again, I'm not a mental health professional, um, but that. Uh, 
I don't know, that, that kind of stuck out to me is at least something to explore with a mental health professional. Right. It certainly, certainly couldn't, couldn't hurt in right. my opinion. Right. You know? you know, all of us are going to be in places and at times in our life where let's say we have a bout of food poisoning or, you know, we have an emergency that calls us away from a child. We need to feel safe being away from our ch- children for our own benefit and for theirs right and and i and i agree i think there is um this is sort of it feels like an extreme in terms of this approach or this stance that many parents feel obligated to take that it is me i am the final frontier this is my responsibility but if there is a way to feel more flexibly about one's caregiving mm-hmm. it can only benefit us and, and our kids Let's, uh, since we're talking about babies, let's segue into the, um, have you written the article for Slate? So I am in the process of um, finalizing it with the editor right now. Okay. It's about breastfeeding. It Uh, is. Talk about that. Sure. So just, you know, by way of background, um, I had a baby in 2021. Um, He is now two and a half years old. And... As I was gearing up to have this baby, I, at that point, had been well with bipolar disorder for about six years. But I was aware that I was entering this peripartum period of my t- of my life, which would biologically put me at a very high-risk zone for a relapse. And define peripartum. Peripartum is the whole period of time around being pregnant and then the first year of your baby's okay. life. So that whole period of time. And because of the hormonal shifts and the sleep deprivation and all of the new roles and responsibilities that come with being a first-time parent, you're at especially high risk for a relapse if you have any kind of mood disorder, right? Especially bipolar disorder. And I entered this period very, you know, frankly, very terrified that I was going to lose myself. I was going to um, have a major episode and and need all kinds of. Um, help to get me back to a place where I could be the parent that I wanted to be. And my psychiatrist from the get-go said, we have to protect your sleep. That's number one. And she recommended that I never even attempt to breastfeed. Because here's what happens when parents breastfeed. It's on the mother, just one parent usually, to be waking up to pump or to feed every one to two to three hours throughout the first several months of the baby's life. Oh, Lord. Yes. What happens when you formula feed is you can externalize that work. A parent, any parent, can get at least four um, four to eight hours of sleep at a time. Somebody else can get up when the baby is hungry. The baby's still waking up every one to two to three hours, but the difference is that anybody can feed them when they wake up. And so the mother or the father, whoever is the person at higher risk given a history of mood disorder, um, can then sleep through whatever period of time they need to be stable and well. So this does not apply to somebody without a mood disorder? You know, I think it could apply to um, anybody with a mental health condition or a health condition that flares with lack of sleep. Gotcha. So when I spoke to a couple of perinatal psychiatrists for this piece, um, Dr. Crystal Clark and Dr. Nancy Byatt, they both stressed to me that there are people who 
um, fall into these categories, but also people who start to breastfeed, really want it to go well. And for a number of reasons, let's say it's not going well. They're having difficulty with supply or with latch, or they just don't have the amount of time off from work that they would like to start to make this work, or they don't have a place to pump, things like this. There's a lot of reasons that people want to breastfeed but can't. And it turns out in those people seeking to breastfeed, you know, bumping it over the head um, turns into a vicious cycle where they fall into poor mental health outcomes. Self-blame, Self-blame, I'm a terrible mother, I'll never get this, I, you know, the worst thing I could do for my baby is to formula feed. And when you actually interrogate the data, where does this feeling come from? It comes largely from observational studies where we've compared those kids who were happening to be breastfed versus those kids who happened to be formula fed, fed, and there are all kinds of differences between those kids when you when it comes to resources and educational status and all of these kinds of confounding factors. And when you look at the randomized studies of when people were assigned to breastfeed versus not, and they have much more similar um, backgrounds and other variables you find that a lot of the putative um, impacts that people uh, point to and think about, such as intelligence, health um, effects for the kids, things like rates of asthma or obesity, those things are not true when you look at the randomized data. The the small, small um, impacts that you do see are, number one, short-term effects for infants, like they have fewer GI bugs and upset in the first year of life. So diarrhea episodes tend to be lower. Um, They have lower rates of eczema in that, again, first year of life, just the first few months. And moms have lower risk of cancer, um, uterine and and breast. But other than those impacts, which are finite, I've just listed them, the other impacts are vastly overblown and used to make this case in a way that is not evidence-based. And it ends up making families feel like it's the only choice to breastfeed when in fact, you know, kids are happy, healthy, well-adjusted with both choices in place. Gotcha. Let's talk about, well, let's back up. What what was childhood uh, like for you? What, what was... Um, kind of the mental and emotional environment that you were raised in? Yeah, it's such a good question to always, you know, go back to the beginnings. Um, I was raised in a very loving um, four-person family. I have a younger sister, um, and both my parents are very, very devoted to us and always created a sense of of safety, regardless of where we were. One of the unusual parts about my childhood was that it took place in three different countries. Um, we started out in India, where my parents were working with the civil service. And then we moved to the US because um, they started to uh, want to go back to school. So we came here for um, the period of time where they were grad students. And then we moved to the Philippines, um, when they um, transitioned into international development and health work. Um, and so we were stationed there. It was supposed to have been a three-year um, exploration, and we ended up, um, you know, they ended up being there for 21 years by the end of it. 
And now they've just moved back about five years ago back to India. So what what was the age range when you were in India and the age range when you were in the States and then the Philippines? So I was in India between zero and seven, left India at the age of seven to come here to the U.S., found it very culturally different, which I can talk about, was here between seven and eleven, seven and ten actually, so about only three years um, at that juncture, and then was in the Philippines between ten and eighteen, and then eighteen to thirty-seven. Now I've come back to the U.S. on my own as a first-generation immigrant, um, and I've been here for you know a couple of decades. And remind me again where you're based out of. I'm based out of the Bay Area, but it's actually a, a trick question, Paul, because. These days, my family is um, doing, you know, a few months on the road together. So we technically don't have a home, a full-time home. We put all of our things in storage about seven months ago, and we've spent time in India and Puerto Rico and Mexico, and right now we're here in LA, but we are thinking about um, returning to the Bay Area in 2024. So talk about uh, the culture shock when you moved here at seven? Yeah. <clears throat> One of the things that I can remember very distinctly is, um, you know, the, the real focus on being an agent of your own making and an individual with choices and agency around those choices. So, for example, um, in India, we, you know, I had a very um, strong social group. I uh, loved playing imaginative um, games, loved going to school, loved playing with the friends that I had at home. But I'd never, ever been asked a question like, what is your favorite color? Or what is your favorite anything, really? And so when I came here at seven, that was that's a way in which adults especially relate to kids of that age in the U.S. culture and context. And it took me by surprise. It's such a basic thing, right? Even me to my kid, who's two and a half, I'll ask him things like that. But because I was coming from such a different cultural milieu, which is much more collectivistic and more about who you are in relationship to other people and to your context, um, rather than who you are on your own terms and who you've decided you want to be, that just was never a question I'd come across before. And for the first several times it was asked of me, flummoxed me. And then finally I came up with a, with an answer to it that sort of made me not need to commit to one specific mm -hmm. color. I would say, you know, I love the color fluorescent, anything fluorescent, you know? <laughs> and so it would be all the colors. It's funny now because now my son says his favorite color is rainbow. So it's a very similar situation. But yes, that was a small example of, of a bigger issue. I'd love to the question uh, of the person who comes from the country with the greatest colors uh, right. in, in the world, at least in terms of uh, clothing. Right. Uh, so what are some some other things that were a culture shock to you? Or are those the main ones? No, so that's, you know, kind of a surface um, example of a deeper issue. But I, I remember coming here, I spoke English as a second language. Um, and, you know, listeners who are from the subcontinent will know that many Indians speak English. It's one of our national languages. But I had learned Hindi first um, and spoke that at home, um, as well as a little bit of English and then learned English 
um, growing up as well. But I spoke it with an accent, with a deep, um, strong Indian accent. And I remember coming here, I was um, in second grade and being made fun of um, for the way I said different words. And the other thing I will never forget is how quickly I worked to try to get rid of my Indian accent and how much of a sore thumb it made me feel like I was. And and little things like, you know, I would um uh food that we would eat um would would suddenly be seen as strange and smelly and and weird, right? And and you really internalize some of these judgments of people you've just started to learn to meet and 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 to, to deal with and somehow their opinions become so important. Um, so just that experience of um, of being an outsider for the first time, of needing to change much of my outward as well as inward sense of self and identity in order to fit in. And I think that sense of sort of chameleonic adaptability um, stood me in pretty good stead throughout the next several years of my life, um, for better or for worse, because um, as I mentioned, by the age of 10, uh, I was in my third country, seventh school, because we'd done a lot of moving around even within the U.S. before that point. Um, and, you know, as a kid, you derive your sense of who you are from things like who your friends are and what you all talk about at the lunch table and things of that nature. And for that to be in constant flux means that who you are is also in a state of constant flux. And being adaptable is is incredible in a lot of ways because you can get along with just about anybody, but it also means that it takes you longer to find that sure footing of who you actually are deep inside all of those chameleonic changes that you can put on or off. What were some of the first uh ways that that you began to identify who you were outside of how you fit in socially if so you think, can if you can recall yeah any. I, you know there were a couple i think my as i as i said at the outset i think you know the fact that my four person family you know we were going through all of these changes together and and we were each other's constants so those relationships were really important um in weathering the storm um, Would and, you open up about the school struggles and anxiety oh, yes. about your? Oh yes. And, and was what was the reaction among the family around you about that? You know, I think I think there was a lot of support because my mother, um, who grew up in India, had also spent five years um, in the U.S. when her father had been stationed there for a brief period of time as a kid, and. So she really related to some of the um, the challenges around being culturally an outsider and, and what it takes to integrate into a new society. So she had seen that her, in her own life, right? So she was very, very um, empathetic and, and helpful. And I think the other big arena that was always a constant and was always encouraged by our family, in our family as well, was, you know, being academically inclined, right? So I was a reader from the beginning of my life. Like I remember reading before even, um, before we were reading in school, I would just like read on my own. And the way that we would spend our weekends would be, we'd go to the library and come up with a pile of books and half of the pile would be done by the end of the weekend. And when we were punished as kids, believe it or not, it was 
no books <laughs> for two days, four days, whatever wow. it was, literally. And so, and so that was the other big identity um, that we had of um, being readers and writers and thinkers. And um, so that, that also, I think, really helped ground us. So let's, when did your uh, bipolar begin to show? If so, that's the right word. Yeah, it's such an interesting question because I've thought about this a lot. And for most people, we know that um, at least half of mental illness will show up in some form by the time somebody is 14 years old. And three quarters of people will show symptoms by the time they're 24 years old. So for me, you know, my whole childhood passed with me not I, I was I was an anxious kid. Um, you know, I would I would get nervous about school. Um, I would, you know, stay up if I had a worry or, or an anxiety and um and I had, you know, but with all the moving, I socially sometimes I, I would feel ill at ease and so forth. But I really didn't have anything, you know, textbook or diagnosable or clinical um until I was in my twenties. Um, so I, you know, I had a, I had a, re- I was lucky to have, um, quote unquote, a fairly healthy and normal um, um, childhood and early adulthood period. And then it was when I was in medical school, actually. So I was um, 23 when I had my very first mood episode, and that was a depression. Um, and the way it came about was I spent um, four months or so in a very remote province in Nicaragua, far away from all of my usual supports, setting up a program from the ground up, which was very challenging, um, speaking in my third language, Spanish, and um, and dealing with a couple of um, traumatic experiences while I was on the ground there. And all of that transpired to make me have an experience I'd never had before, where I was not able to sleep, not able to process thoughts, not able to be present or normal and in conversations, um, just a sense that my brain was just frozen and the thoughts were just so sluggish, which is very, um, you know, mm. usual. Uh, if, for, de- depression, for depression, difficulty making decisions. Uh, Absolutely. Are you comfortable sharing what the traumatic events were? If, if not, totally fine. We can skip over it. You know, I haven't talked about them publicly yet, and I'm, I'm not sure that I'm ready to yet. No problem. Thank you. No problem. Um. So you began to feel sluggish. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And I just thought, you know, maybe there's something in the air here. Um, I'm really anxious. I'm I'm removed from everybody I know and I love. There's no way to contact them. You know, internet access is very intermittent here. It, they still had no running water. It was a very, very remote place. So I said, you know, I'll go back into my usual surroundings and I'll feel so much better. I'll feel just back to myself. And it just didn't happen. I visited my family in the Philippines um, for about a week, then went back to Boston, which is where my then boyfriend, now husband, um, was setting up our first home together. And, you know, starting back at school, coming back to him, like nothing felt right. Everything felt kind of broken still. I couldn't process anything that was happening at school. For the very first time, I felt completely out of my depth. And felt like maybe I just can't do this medical school thing. Again, with the social just freezing when people would talk to me, what's the right thing to say when someone says, how was your summer? 
What's the right thing to say when someone says, "How are you doing?" My God, it it. When I'm depressed, I hate that so much. It's it's yeah. like somebody saying to you, "Describe the most complex parts of the universe. Describe fog right. to me." It's right. just it, it's like you don't even know where to begin, and then you feel like. Uh, I don't know, failure is too strong of a word, but you feel like ignorant in a way or like kind of emotionally stupid that you don't know. And you want to say, I'm fine. I had a great time. But it also feels so false to say, oh, I've, you know, been feeling like life is just too much lately. You know, you don't want to, you know, quote unquote, burden them with that. It feels like you know, bench pressing 500 pounds, especially smiling. Right. And it takes everything you have to just appear normal. And then at the end of the charade, you're just exhausted. Exhausted. And then you can't sleep. There's no way to ameliorate the exhaustion. You're just waiting for the sun to come up and ooh, go through the whole thing all over again. So in my case, honestly... And is that particular mm-hmm. to bipolar that you have insomnia with depression? Because for many of us, the depression is we can't get up. Mm-hmm. We just want to live in bed. Yes. In in bipolar mood episodes in general, lack of sleep, it can both be a trigger for the episode, but then it can also, the episode itself can manifest with insomnia. So for me, for sure, anytime I'm depressed or hypomanic, we're having a mixed episode, which is both at the same time can't sleep. Always first to go and last to return um, when I'm when I'm unwell. But yeah, just I remember staying up all night feeling like, okay, tomorrow is going to be a better day. And then the sun would come up and then, you know, having to go through all those motions all over again. And luckily, um, you know, my mom, who had done enough reading about what, what it can look like when someone is depressed, recognized it in me. And I thought, having studied it as a as a medical student at Harvard, I was um, under the impression that you have to be sad for it mm-hmm. to qualify as depression. And it's in the DSM as a criterion, but it's actually very misleading because so many of us just feel numb. Yes. Numb, a lack of vitality. Uh, Andrew Solomon, I quote this often on the podcast, but said the opposite of depression isn't happiness, it's vitality. And yes. I, the first time I heard that, I went, yes, it's yes. So, so true. And then it, it makes you think, you know, the DSM was not written by people who have experienced um, these conditions for the most part. Anyway, so I, di- I, I digress, but it's an important digression. And um, I was diagnosed with depression. At the time, there was no inkling in my history or my family history that this could be a bipolar depression, that I could have an illness that's more on the bipolar spectrum. And so I started on straight antidepressants. Then fast forward about three years, basically every antidepressant stopped working after a little while and then would layer this very agitated and anxious energy on top of the depression in retrospect to hypomanic energy, mm-hmm. um, which at the time was just seen as, okay, well, now you're having anxiety and depression. This is very common. Let, let's give you more of the same. And I had 20 different medication trials, all of which just made me worse in the long run. Finally, at the end of this, I was on three different activating meds at the same time. And I, my brain was tripped into not just hypomania or a mixed state, but frank mania, 
right, where it was no longer subtle, where it could no longer be be seen that, oh, this is just a little bit of irritability or anxiety. Um, it was, okay, you have a brain that is on the bipolar spectrum, and this very clearly puts us in the realm of treating you with mood-stabilizing agents rather than antidepressants on their own. Uh, give me some snapshots from the, you know, when it really flared up, Ooh, if you're um, comfortable. Yeah. So it was it was a very brief manic episode because I recognized it immediately. I was I was vacillating between being so so self-righteously thrilled that quote unquote there was finally we finally knew what was wrong with me that there was something really going on. Okay, you have you have to understand the state of mind I was in until I got to this point which was Three years of failed medication, trial after trial after trial, which ends up making you feel as a patient like you are not doing it right. Mm-hmm. And, you and, and it's failing. never going to work. And that your brain is never, ever going to come back mm-hmm. to the way it was before. Yep. And and here I was like living in the dark, hiding this from most of my friends and colleagues at medical school because there's so much stigma in the halls of medicine about serious mental illness particularly, but mental illness in general. Um, that you can't be a good doctor if if you are quote unquote impaired, right? Not that you know you can walk through a mental illness and mm-hmm. be recovered and and a better and a more empathic clinician at the end of the road. But in any case, I was I was hiding. It was terrible. My brain was very far from me, and I never thought I would get it back. So having that manic episode was like this moment of hallelujah. I have something that's actually wrong with me. I'm not just having like pretend symptoms that aren't responding to the medications that they're supposed to respond to i have i have a diagnosis and that will put me in the in, in a in a very different place hopefully from a treatment perspective so so anyway so but you asked me what was that moment like so vacillating between this like i solved it all the hallelujah you know the grandiosity mm-hmm. that's very typical of mania to kind of cycling downward and feeling really um, let down and chagrined that I had this very stigmatized new diagnosis. This is as you went from the mania to the depression, or just settling down from the depression. It was all part of the mania. I was. It really? was just between sort of this like thrilled, angry, self righteous to like this despair of. What does this mean for me? The, the big bad B word is is in my file or in my life now. I'm I'm, I'm just laughing uh, at the the depth of the mutual annoyance between the person who is manic and the loved ones. Oh, it's, yeah, it is so profound. It's like you just both of you want to shake each other and say, "Can't you see? Can't you see?" Right. It's so frustrating being around somebody who is manic. Or depressed. Yeah. It's not fun to be around anyone who's mentally ill in a very serious way. Yeah. For sure. It's so hard on loved ones because you are not the person they know and and you don't and you can say and do things that you wouldn't normally say or do and it's really hurtful. And so often they're well intentioned, but it is not what the person who is struggling uh, needs to or wants to hear. And that's why I'm just a big fan of the two things for the loved one listening, not trying to fix listening 
maybe suggesting uh, is or offering, is there, what can I do to help? Can I make an appointment for you? Can I, you want me to pick you up something from the store? Can I come over and can we just sit on the couch and watch your favorite TV show? We don't have to talk. Um, and then on the part of the person who is struggling is to say, what can I do to try to what is there something new that I can try? You know, just moving your feet in, in doing something, even if it's just today, I'm going to take a shower. Um, but I've come across so many people, friends who want to stay in that stuck place and don't want to try anything. And then it's so draining talking to them when every time you talk to them, they're depressed, but they don't believe there's anything that they can do. And maybe it's just me being a dick of a friend, but I feel like we have a bit of a responsibility to those around us and, of course, to ourselves to to make some type of effort to get better. Is Is, is that unreasonable? I don't think it is. Um, you know, but don't pull any punches if you feel like yeah. that's a little. Uh, Say that again. That we that we owe it to ourselves, essentially, uh, to ourselves and to, to the people around us. If every day, you know, we're on the phone for an hour talking about how depressed we are and how you know going to to get help isn't going to do anything, um, we're not going to try anything you know, kind of stuck in that self, not that place of self-compassion, but self-pity mm. and, and uh, rigidity. Yeah. That's the, that's the thing that I feel like um, if, if there's anything we can do for ourselves and those around us, it's yeah. at least be open-minded. Right. You know, that is the hardest part about being unwell, that, you literally, you don't have access to all parts of you and are all parts of your expansive, healthy brain. And you don't know how long that state of stuckitude is going to last. And it's it's real stuckitude in the moment. It It is literally much, much, much harder to walk around the block or take a shower or write a coherent email. It takes much more effort and doing and and wherewithal because your brain is just in a very different state. And yes, I think the the little, little, little steps that we can each take towards being better and better um, matter. And we do owe that to ourselves first, I would say, and then those around us as well. But ooh, it is so hard when we're in it. It is it's so, hard. so hard. And there will be days where you don't feel like giving it your all. Yeah. Or, or, or it's okay to not give it your all. Yeah. But at some point. Mm-hmm getting to that place where e even it's just saying to you know to somebody yes you you can find a try to find a psychiatrist for me or a therapist for me mm -hmm. um i'm, I'm yeah. willing mm -hmm. to try right. something yeah and paul this thing that you mentioned about how can loved ones show up so you you talked about listening to validate what that person is experiencing rather than to fix and really being guided by your loved one in what they need in that moment from you. And sometimes it can be hard to come up with that 
in the moment when you're feeling all well. And one of the things I really advocate for is having those kinds of discussions ahead of time when we're all, you know, as well as we can be, um, if possible, to sit people down and say, when I get depressed, I need you to come with me to the doctor's office because I can't process what's being said and I can't advocate for myself in the same way. Or when I'm feeling hypomanic, please tell me to get off of the family chats, <laughs> whatever it is, right? Whatever it is that we each need when we're in our less well places, um, setting that up ahead of time can be super, super helpful with specific asks. Yeah. And, and I, I want to emphasize that, you know, when I'm saying, um, you know, we have responsibility to ourselves and to others to to try new things. I don't mean every day. Right. You know, it's fine if there are weeks where we we can't get out of bed or whatever. But I, I mean, in the long term, being willing to try. Things. Right. Absolutely. And I think I think it is about keeping that long arc and that long mm. perspective of not, you know, where am I today, but where am I today relative to maybe two months ago? And and seeing those little incremental mm. um, changes. Uh, add up over time um, and believing that even though you don't know how long this episode will last, that you've been well before, you're going to have a way of finding yourself and and finding your way back again. Um, and just keeping that faith, even if it takes a friend telling you that every day, yeah. that you don't really believe. It's so hard mm -hmm. to believe that you're going to feel better when you feel when you're when you're in that place. For sure. For sure. What are some takeaways, if any, that you have from having been the Surgeon General? And uh, it sounds so impressive, the Surgeon General of California. So my journey um, kind of to state government um, started, it was actually, I was in the office of the California Surgeon General for three and a half to four years. Um, and my initial role there was as Chief Health Officer um, when that office was first getting established. So most people may know the U.S. Surgeon General, Dr. Mm -hmm. Vivek Murthy is our, um, you know, uh, 21st U.S. Surgeon General. He's also our 19th. And um, he is wonderful. And that office has a long and storied history. However, there's very few states that have their own Surgeon General offices or Surgeons General. Um, so California's was only founded in 2019. So oh, that yeah, I didn't know that. Yeah, we didn't have one until literally four, four or five, four years ago now. Um, and I got to know the first Surgeon General, Dr. Nadine Burke Harris, um, during my time at Stanford. And I started to work with her um, and became one of her first hires in her office as Chief Health Officer. And in that role really helped her to architect and launch the ACEs AWARE initiative, which is um, California's flagship program for addressing the impacts of childhood trauma, really helping to make the links for clinicians and patients and anybody who interacts with, um, you know, any human being, essentially, to understand how childhood trauma, when not well addressed, can end up disrupting a number of biological systems, ranging from neurobiology to the immune system, and then can lead to risk for earlier onset and more intransigent chronic diseases like you know, heart disease or cancer or depression, right? And what can you do differently 
when you know that that dysregulated biology might be the root cause of somebody coming in for diabetes much earlier than is typical or with with worse um, outcomes or worse control of that diabetes? And what can you do to help them unravel their biological stress systems um, or their um, dysregulated stress responses to um, bring them back to a place of more healthy and regulated response. That and you're talking about kids, what what age range? So, or are you talking about adults with unaddressed yeah, childhood trauma? The whole range. So the program we set up was um, meant to talk about this for kids and adults. So um, essentially, it is a screening and reimbursement program for patients who are up until the age of 65. Um, so any age, you, you could be talking about a pregnant person, you could be talking about a 25-year-old, you could be talking about a 64-year-old um, who might have uh, dysregulated stress biology, which then puts them at risk for a different way of manifesting disease. And and so is there education or any kind of um, flow chart for how to talk to someone when you see the signs that perhaps there was childhood trauma? And the question is two-part. One, when they're an adult – and two, when they're under the care of a parent and there's the possibility that the parent is abusive. Yeah, and I think um, you know the resources that we have built using expert guidance and really helping to make sure that clinics, clinicians, and health systems know that they're not alone in having to, to think about this. So for sure, there are scripts and um, ways of talking about this that we recommend in first a, a free two-hour training that we set up um, that's online, as well as in a number of tools and toolkits um, that are that are out. But essentially, the short answer to your question, it can be it's a very varied response when it's in the in the past and it's been dealt with in many ways, um, but might still uh, be creating a situation where stress biology is activated and needs to be um, re-regulated um, for, let's say, a 40-year-old um, versus a kid who might still be in an acute, um, unsafe situation where the, the response is very different, where you want to um, remove uh, the stressors, re- re-regulate the biology, and, and also do some um, prevention and intervention. And what work. do you mean when you say remove the stressors? So it depends on the source of of, of significant toxic stress. So for example, um, one of the things we know that really help to prevent child abuse and neglect is actually to support parents with economic supports. Um, and so that in that case is preventive. Um, in, in the setting where you alluded to, uh, where somebody is in an active um, situation where there are there's uh, something unsafe happening actively, um, sometimes the the best first course of action is to remove them from that setting, depending on what is going on. Other times it might be to help get a parent into treatment for a substance use disorder or um, for depression. That's anger untreated. management. Is that ever one? Um, you know, if it's if it's in the realm where it can be diagnosed as uh, you know a, a mental illness or a substance use disorder, then often. Um, Often you need more than that, right? You, you're going to need um, clinical treatment. Anything else you'd like to uh, to, to share. share about that that period of time, uh, or, or anything? 
in your experience, your life, or you know your experiences as a clinician? Oh, sure. Um, so many places I might be able to take that, but um, you know, just to just to give a little bit more color. So, um, the period of time that I that I served as acting surgeon general was a seven month period, um, and I was really privileged to have had deep mentorship and insight into you know how to architect a, a, a policy um, instead of programs from the ground up. And that period of time was also really powerful and meaningful for me personally because of um, the need to understand my own journey and um, capabilities in a new way, right? So when, when, when called to step into a brand new role, one where you're providing strategic guidance um, for state programming, but also one where you are a spokesperson, requires you to really deeply understand um, your own values and your own story and the ways in which those lenses intersect with the policy work, with the public health programming, with this, with the, the spokesperson role. And so I felt like it was a really meaningful opportunity for me to um, – during that period of time to use that platform to really do my part to destigmatize serious mental illness because I think what can happen in the majority of the people that I know who live with um, serious mental illness, once it has been well-treated, people sometimes act like it is not a, not a factor in their life or they hide it. Um, and, and I'm, and I'm, very, very appreciative of all of the factors that lead to that kind of a, um, a scenario. But it was a meaningful moment because I, during that time, as, as you as you know, um, chose to share my story publicly um, in the LA Times and in an op-ed, uh, in, a, in a keynote um, at a NAMI conference, as well as on social media. And, and I was just um, so moved by the response to that. And, and I'm sure you can identify with this, having shared your own journey. Um, and it made me feel so connected to so many hearts and minds that I'd never, I'd never had the the chance to meet, but felt feel like now, you know, at this moment. Almost a year has passed. A year plus has passed since that time, and a lot of what I'm doing now is staunchly in the mental health advocacy realm, helping people to understand um, the nuance of stories of recovery, of the fact that there are superpowers that can be gained from walking through these really, really rough mm-hmm. moments. And he, the depth of human connection and mm-hmm. the spiritual component mm-hmm. of struggle right that when we're in the struggle it never occurs to us that as as we heal recover manage whatever you want to call it even if it's temporary that if we're sharing our stories and we're being vulnerable with people uh that that it can lift our spirits which can then be Something that, while it won't erase mental illness, can be a tool in our in our kit to 
help buoy us uh, emotionally and mentally. At least uh, mentally, at least that that is what I have found is the sense of meaning and purpose that can, can come from a, a, <clears throat> a struggle. But if we keep it to ourselves and we never open up about it, we miss out on that. Right. Absolutely. And it's just been such a gift, right? In in the wake of that that disclosure, to now be in community with so many like-minded people like you. And I've been really privileged to um, launch a well-being newsletter uh, where every week um, I share one evidence-based behavioral nudge. Right now we're on um, a, a series on how to create more in-person presence by limiting or distancing ourselves from our screens. So every week we get like, you know, mm-hmm. one little thing that we do together. And then I also have um, a mental illness podcast uh, called Spread the Light um, with Dr. Devika B. Um, and uh, I've, I've been privileged to join the boards of um, NAMI. Um, NAMI is an awesome organization. Yeah, if yeah. if uh, listeners have never checked that out, it's N-A-M-I uh, dot org and tons of resources, not only for people dealing with mental illness, but for the loved ones who often need as much Huge. support. Absolutely. And that's where we went to NAMI first was actually for my partner to understand what the scope of a diagnosis like bipolar disorder could be. But NAMI is beautiful and amazing. But, um, you know, and then I spend a lot of my time doing health advising as well for um, programs that are that are working on um, wellness, res- resilience and, and equity. So really privileged to um, to be doing all of that work and, and being in deep conversation with um, others who want to shift um, the realities around mental illness in our country. Love it. So give me all the ways that people can find you, um, stuff of yours. You mentioned the the podcast. Give us the name of it again. Sure. <clears throat> so I think the first thing, um, the most kind of important thing to, to look out for if you're a reader is the newsletter. So that's on Substack. It is Ask Dr. Devika, D-E-V-I-K-A, B dot substack dot com. So ask Dr. We'll put Devika a link to B. that because there's no way that we can anybody that. is going to remember. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> remember that. We'll put in but some if links. They, I'm sure if they search uh, Devika substack, it'll, it'll come it'll up. Show up. It'll yeah. show up. And then the, the podcast um, and YouTube channel is um, Spread the Light with Dr. Devika B. And, and the tagline is um, Stigma Scatters in the light and it festers in the dark uh, when we don't talk about it. So, and is it just uh, professionals that you have on? Uh, it's people of all walks of life. And I am inviting myself as a guest and Lovely. you do not have the option of saying no. I love How that. How do you enjoy that? I love it. Thank you. Uh, we will put the links to uh, all your stuff. Where can they find you on social media? At So that's all at Dr. Devika B. Uh, Instagram, X, you know, all of all of the D-E-V-I-K-A platforms. D-E-V-I-K-A yeah. uh, and the letter B. Yeah. And I'm, I'm newly trying to, um, you know, start using LinkedIn. So that's another place that we can connect. Awesome. Thank you. Thank you so much for having me, Paul. So grateful for uh, her openness and um, helping destigmatize. We're going to take a quick break and see if we have any sponsors. Uh, Before we get to some surveys, just, uh, I fucking hate doing this, but we have stalled at uh, 880 Patreon members and we need to get to about 1,500 
for the podcast to not be in deficit and would really love if you get something. If you find value in this podcast, please consider uh, becoming a monthly donor. You can do it for as little as uh, as a dollar a month. You can also do a one-time uh, donation through PayPal or become a monthly donor through, uh, through PayPal if you don't like Patreon. Um, you can also... Uh, shoot me a Venmo at MentalPod. Um, so uncomfortable asking for help. Let's get to some surveys. This is an awful moment filled out by a woman who calls herself L. She writes, During my adolescence and young adulthood, I was a frequent flyer in the metal ward at a hospital in Chicago. Due to my regular visits, I got to know the nurses, orderlies, etc. pretty well. Coolest person who worked in the ward was by far a young man who I'll call Keith. He was always smiling and joking and actually treated me like a person and not a patient. One time after a suicide attempt, I ended up in the ward for maybe the 10th tenth time in a few years. Something other than the obvious went wrong and I ended up needing to be restrained and shot up with what must have been an antipsychotic. Before I conked out, I remember being disappointed because Keith was one of the men who was holding me down. I don't remember seeing him again after that, but to be fair, I was pretty doped up the entirety of that stay. Fast forward to a couple of years later, I'd spent the past couple of years in a group home for troubled youth and had recently graduated to independent living. I was visiting my sister at her apartment and ran into Keith. Again, my memory's kind of spotty, so I don't remember the exact circumstances of how I ran into him. Maybe I hallucinated him, but diagnosed as bipolar, uh, and she hit. Uh, but somehow he ended up in the apartment with me and my sister. A little backstory is needed here. Both my sister and I had been diagnosed as bipolar. And she had also spent some time in the hospital. She as well thought Keith was the coolest person there. Anyway, the three of us went, were in her apartment drinking Goldschlager. That's what you, when you get released from a stay, you got to go Goldschlager. Drinking Goldschlager is something equally as gross, and someone, probably me, decided we should play truth or dare. Again, I don't remember the string of horrendous truths or dares we succumbed to. I only remember sometime towards the end of the night, Keith running down the hall of the apartment building, banging on people's doors in his boxer shorts and screaming help while cracking the fuck up. We never saw Keith again after that, but he did tell us at some point that night that he was in school to become a psychiatrist. I recently told my boyfriend this story, and he said, in his always stoic manner, seems like a cool guy. Indeed, he was. Thank you for that. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by a guy who calls himself Dash BX. And uh, he identifies as... I don't know. I like who I like. He's in his 30s, says that he was raised in a stable and safe environment. Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? Some stuff happened, but I don't know if it counts. When I was about 11, a family friend, six years older than me, taught me how to masturbate. 
Looking back at it, I can tell now that he was getting off on it. It became a regular thing on sleepovers. He'd want to lay down right next to me to help show me how to do it better. This continued for a while. Even when he was over 18, he was never really forceful or aggressive about it, but definitely manipulated the younger me. Uh, He says that he's never been emotionally uh, or physically abused. Uh, Skipped the question about any positive experiences with uh, abusers. Darkest thoughts. I sometimes think that life would be easier if my wife and special needs child somehow tragically died. Not me hurting them, but just an accident. Something quick, painless. I'm so burnt out all the time from what I wrongfully make up in my own mind that I'm the only one taking up all the responsibilities in marriage and parenthood. When I have these thoughts, I lie to myself and say I feel this way because I see it as a mercy death for them in the sense that my child would never have to navigate life alone when his mom and I die and my wife dying with him would be merciful because I know she can't stand life without him. But the reality is I probably have these thoughts because I'm a selfish piece of garbage that wants to go through life alone. I have a supportive partner, and most of the time life is good, but every now and again I feel this way. It seems pretty human to me. You know, I don't think it matters what we're going through. Uh, For most of us, we're going to go into fantasy about it ending. And whatever that fantasy is, um, it just pops in our head. And I wouldn't judge yourself, you know, if you were like, mm, I'm I'm shopping for arsenic. I'd be like, eh, that's a red flag. I want to talk to somebody. Darkest thoughts. Uh, I'm sorry, darkest secrets. I'm not sure what's the proper label for my sexuality, I'd say. In my early to mid-20s, I discovered that I can pretty much be sexually attracted to anyone once I develop a good bond with them. I've had sexual experience with women, men, and trans women. There isn't anyone in my life that knows this about me. There never was anyone I can really talk to about it, or at least that that's what I tell myself. Um, Sometimes I think it's not a big deal. But then, if it isn't, why haven't I shared this with anyone? I'm not sexually dissatisfied in my relationship, but there are times when I just would like to be unfaithful with people that are not female. I've been unfaithful in the past when I had been traveling for work to different cities on the West Coast. I had my first mental breakdown during this time. I'd woken up after a weekend bender of alcohol and Xanax abuse and just suddenly felt like I wasn't in control of my body. Like my entire life, I'd just been a viewer to my own story. I stayed in my hotel room for two weeks straight, took off sick from work, but still called my wife every morning and afternoon to tell her how productive I'd been at work that day. Eventually, I got help, but to this day, she doesn't know what happened out there or that I'm mentally ill. I hide my medication from her. I've even gone times without it because... uh, Taking them on trips or vacations would expose me. I have no reason why I hide it from her. She's very understanding and supportive, and I feel like I'm lying to her every time I down my pills. Man, I would love to see you open up 
to someone. Just take baby steps. Life is so much better. I was at one of my support groups last night and I asked my uh, my friend how she was doing and she just uh, moved in for a hug and she's a great hugger and uh, she just cried on my shoulder and uh, and we just stayed there and and then she kind of briefly opened up to me about what was going on and I listened and um, man in moments like that you know, whether it's someone's confiding in me or I'm confiding in someone else and crying on their shoulder, it's just, I don't know, it, it's so soothing and it's so perspective changing and it's not, not, not like my problems or their problems disappear, but the feeling in that moment of I'm alone in this world and it's up to me and just me to get through this to, oh, I'm, I'm part of a beautiful tribe. And, you know, there's a saying in recovery, the more you isolate, the more you're on the edge of the herd and the easier it is to get picked off by whatever the darkness is, whether it's addiction or you know, mental health challenges. And I just love being in the middle of the herd. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Having sex with random people whose STD status is questionable. My therapist once called it sexual Russian roulette. What, if anything, would you like to say to someone you haven't been able to? I'd one day like to call my mother out for letting my grandmother raise me and she ran off with her boyfriend. Later on in my late teens, she came back in my life, and now she acts like that time didn't happen. She often makes up false memories of things we did together, and I just go along with it to keep the peace. I don't think it's a coincidence that that, that template of your relationship with your mom, of if you're truthful with someone, the truth is going to be denied or twisted and you're going to feel rejection and invalidation. You know, there's an amazing article by a guy called uh, Dr. Alan Rappaport about, it's called co-narcissism. And one of the things that it says is when we're raised by a narcissist, uh, which your mom sounds like she is, we as adults then believe that the world views us and is going to treat us the way that narcissistic caregiver did. What, if anything, do you wish for? I wish to not be sick anymore. I wish that I can stop telling myself that I'll never achieve anything, even when I'm actually achieving that said thing. I wish that I can be more present and stop telling myself that my life would be better tomorrow when today isn't even that bad. Have you shared these things with others? The first and only time I ever ended up on a metal ward, I had my father come pick me up. I told him about my sickness and let him sit in with one of the doctors there. His first and only question was, so are you going to have to take those pills all your life with the most judgmental of tones? He has never inquired about my health since, and I haven't bothered bringing it up. Well, that's a, that's a double barrel you're getting from 
a narcissistic or narcissistic parents. I don't know, is that the right word? But fuck. Unempathetic, emotionally ignorant, self-involved. What if I just went on for the next hour? How do you feel after writing these things down? Numb at the moment. Buddy, I'm sending you some love. Whether you like it or not. This is an email I got um, that says, uh, are you allowing gambling, casino, and investment-related post? If yes, your best price for this, question mark. Um, right now, I'm not allowing gambling and casino, but I am doing investment-related posts uh, if it can be proven that they are targeting seniors. Uh, I'm also doing ads for arm sales, odorless poisons, prison guard cookbooks. There's some good ones out there, and I help you sort out which ones are good and which ones are garbage. Used outhouse wood, wigs, that are guaranteed to be 90% bug-free. And my best price for this? Oh, that's a hard one. Um, I'll take it in casino chips. Uh, I don't know. If you don't have money, I'll pay you. Is that a bad business move on my part? If that's wrong, I don't want to be right. This is from the Shame and Secret Survey, and this is filled out by uh, a friend of ours in Ireland. And um, this was filled out about six months ago, I think. Yeah, in August. Um, they call themselves DL. They identify as heteroflexible. They're in their 30s. Say that they were raised in a slightly dysfunctional environment. Uh, what gender are you? Meat popsicle. And I don't know if that means... A dude or something else? Ever been the victim of sexual abuse? No. Uh, been emotionally abused. My mother was somewhat emotionally manipulative and smothering. She also made no attempt to hide her hatred for my father, which was incredibly damaging for my relationship with him. I always resented him leaving us until I grew up and realized it was her that left him. She constantly emasculated him and fucked up my idea of what a man should be and what relationships should look like. Any positive experiences with abusers? Of course, she was very warm and nurturing most of the time. She was just very badly, physically, and possibly sexually abused by my pillar of the community, cunt of a grandfather. I want the t-shirt of that. His picture, especially if it's old-timey, and underneath, pillar of the community, cunt of a grandfather. I want it. Darkest thoughts? Crashing my car into my house after setting my cat loose, of course. Burning all evidence of my existence and my neighbor's house is a bonus. And a little smiley face. Darkest secrets? Wishing for my mother's death. 
while I took care of her 24-7 during her terminal cancer. I know this is total, totally normal, but fuck. I wish I had taken a bit more time to sit with her and not see the whole experience as a tedious fucking chore. Sexual fantasy is most powerful to you. Cuddling, wrapped around the girl of my dreams, drunk on the smell of her hair, brushing my face against the side of her neck, whispering loving words, feeling her ass back into me, and when I slide my hand down her pants, feeling her soaking. Spending a whole Sunday morning there, destroying and recreating the entirety of reality. Eye contact and laughs. I'm extremely and aggressively vanilla. Caring, warmth, and closeness are like my equivalent of poppers and a gimp mask. I love the phrase aggressively vanilla. Um... How does sharing that make you feel? Pathetic. I haven't so much as kissed a girl in over eight years. I don't even know if I could again. I'm so fragile that any negativity from a girl I like is crushing, so I don't engage. Emotion is stowed and secured. Love and sex are not a thing I get to have on this loop. What, if anything, would you like to share with someone you haven't been able to? That I am exhausted. Please simultaneously leave me the fuck alone, but also give me a hug. And I've experienced that feeling so many times of wanting to be left alone, but paid attention to and loved. And I think that speaks of, you know, the instinct to want to be loved on our terms which is one of the things that can really fuck our life up is to have preconceived notions about relationships and vulnerability. And I think once, if, if we can take the view of life's going to have some bad surprises, but a lot of good surprises if I just get out there and interact with the flow of life in a way that doesn't ignore self-care or trying to rescue. What, if anything, do you wish for? Family, friends, connection, purpose, and a fucking drink. I've been sober since February of 2022. Drying off damn near killed me. I drank every day for two plus years. I, near, I know where it would lead me, but a cold IPA, a shot of Kilbegan, and a Marlboro Red. I would do unspeakable horrors if I could have that combo consequence-free. Well, I'm just going to suggest one unspeakable horror, and that would be for you to be aggressively vanilla. Have you shared these things with others? Who would I share it with? It's just me, the cat, and a big bag of being sober in Ireland. I have no friends because there's nothing to do socially besides drink. I know for a fact that there are support groups, if that interests you, in Ireland. I mean, unless you are in a tiny, tiny town. But there's always online support groups. And I really encourage you to at least check them out. Um... How do you feel after writing these things down? Soreness around my eyes and sinuses like I want to cry. 
I can't cry anymore. I get weepy when I hear about the truly awful shit that people in uh, places like Burma, Iraq, and Syria have to live through. I have no tears for myself anymore. And this was filled out before the um, the October 7th thing. Uh, is there anything you'd like to share with someone who shares your thoughts or experiences? Oof. I'd love to say you are worthy of love or you are stronger than you know. But you wouldn't listen to that. Just build up some momentum. Inertia is everything. If you are at rest, you will stay there. If you are in motion, you can get faster and stronger. We need you to be strong. We need you. Thank you for that. That was a really, really great survey. And um, I appreciate it. This is from the love survey, and this is filled out by writer's block. And they write, I love that getting a good night's sleep can change so much of what's going on in my thoughts. A bad night's sleep will often do the opposite. But those mornings when I wake up and can feel how the dread of yesterday has sort of been washed away during the night, those are mornings I feel grateful for the natural rhythm of things. Not consuming alcohol makes those mornings much more frequent, by the way. Thank you for that. This is from the Psych Ward Experiences, filled out by a 19-year-old uh, who calls herself Johnny. Johnny or Yanni? I'm not sure which one. Um, she was hospitalized for a suicide attempt. She writes, I was the only patient in the pediatric psych ward, so no one was there to object if I was screamed at by staff. I was yelled at for wanting to watch movies color, sleep, read, or leave the room. I sat at the desk and waited as hours passed. Sometimes I would be allowed to watch one movie a day. Often I wasn't because the nurses and psychologists insisted that the only way I could be this addicted to cutting unless that the only way I could be this addicted to cutting unless I was a victim of sexual abuse or rape and they were angry I wouldn't lie to them and say I was. Silence was constant. I sat with a psychologist who would not let me go until I admitted to a lie so we would sit there until she gave up. The nurses would withhold coloring, watching movies, reading, or walking in the hall until I admitted to a lie. So I stayed in my room constantly. Sometimes the psychologist's silent sessions would go on until dinner had passed. I went to bed hungry. Eventually they all gave up on me and I was discharged. I was 13. I was bipolar with anorexia, but that didn't match up with other people's ideas of what a cutter should be. I was too honest to lie. I stared at walls and ceilings and carpet and waited for someone to ask me, why did you cut yourself 176 times? No one ever did. It was the longest 18 days of my life. I'm going to be very restrained here in my response bite back a bitter, angry rant that's not really directed at or meant for you and say, no, it did not help. Wow. Wow. If I saw that in a movie, I would be like, that, that couldn't happen. No staff could be that incompetent and unsympathetic. We've had about a thousand people fill out the psych ward experiences survey. 
And I am, while there are some positive ones in there, they are in the minority. Um, I would say 80% are negative experiences and 20% are positive experiences. And to a person, it has everything to do with two things. The compassion of the staff and attentiveness and the developing of tools for that person to have once they're released. And finally, this is from the Loves survey, and this is filled out by Rabbit Heart at 4 a.m. And they write, I love crosswords. After a long period of bad sleep and lots of scrolling in the night, I decided to take up solving crosswords. I never did this before, but I remember my grandma did it when she was still alive. She would sit in her chair in the living room and ask the rest of the family for words while enjoying this hobby of hers. Back then, I didn't get it. But now, I'm the same, except I do it alone at four in the morning to ease my nightly anxiety. And surprisingly, it often works. I bought myself some Crosswords for Beginners magazines, and now instead of scrolling myself to sleep with blue lights and bad news hitting my eyes, I look for words on the paper. It's so corny and innocent, and I get tired after a while much faster than before. It's like a little bubble in this big world. I love my grandma very much, and though in a very different manner, I love crosswords. And I love your survey. What do you think of that? Thank you to everybody that fills out the surveys. It means so, so much to me. And, you know, I have been asking a lot for financial support. There are, just by filling a survey out, because I know there are a lot of people out there financially struggling, and there are ways you can support the survey non-financially. You can take a survey, you can subscribe via your, uh, whatever your podcast player is. You can write a nice review, you can spread the word through social media, or you can do nothing at all. I just hope if you get something out of this podcast that, that, um, no, I just hope that. No if. That's it. You are now released on your own recognizance. And I don't even know what recognizance means. I don't know how to spell it. I don't know what it means. But I like the sound of it because it sounds fancy and smart. And I went to college. I must have been asleep. If you're out there and you feel, oh, I want to play a song. Uh, and by play, I mean it's pre-recorded, but it's a song I uh, I wrote and recorded, and I hope you like it. And if you're out there and you're feeling stuck, never forget you're not alone. And thanks for listening. 